Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. With illegal immigration surging at the southern border, President Biden and Mexico's president spoke today. What's their plan? Amazon is allegedly censoring a children's book that was number one on the platform. The book is about a boy who wants to become a walrus, but later changes his mind. Amazon stock tanking after its first quarterly loss in seven years, but is the worst yet to come. A former Afghan official shares with NTD the current situation in Afghanistan under Taliban rule. He says the domestic economy is near collapse. The first known American has died fighting in the war in Ukraine. His family says he joined the fight because he believed in the cause. The White House continues to feel the heat over the border surge. And the DHS secretary spent all week testifying before Congress, selling a plan for the expected illegal immigration influx. However, there is still skepticism, even among congressional Democrats. Today, President Biden spoke with Mexico's president. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with the latest. Anticipating a surge in illegal immigration this summer, President Biden today spoke with Mexico's president. President Biden did not make any new requests of Mexico. The administration's approach to immigration so far is to tackle what they call the root causes by investing in Central America's economic development. In a stark contrast to the previous administration's approach, President Biden did not attempt to pressure Mexico's president to ramp up his own security at the border. But it was meant to be a constructive call. It was not meant to deliver a threatening message. That is my understanding of what took place. And following that video call, the White House today confirmed that Biden has no plans to visit the southern border. Even as the administration plans to lift Title 42, a public health policy that allows migrants to be expelled immediately. Lifting Title 42 is on hold for now via a court order. But after it's lifted, the DHS is bracing itself for 12 to 18,000 crossings per day. And we will address this challenge successfully. But despite hours of trying to sell his plan to Congress this week, skepticism lingers, even among Democrats. No person who cares about migrants should want It's clear to me that the federal government is not prepared, not even close. Senator Mark Kelly specifically says, quote, there's having things on a piece of paper and then what is going on at the southern border, and there is a huge disconnect. The White House today was pressed on when this plan can be seen in action. Here's the exchange. So that there's actual proof that it's taking place. Well, the Title 42 lifts on May 23rd. We haven't seen, uh, you know, the impacts of the lifting surges because it hasn't happened yet. And the White House says the only real solution here is immigration reform and has called on Congress to pass an immigration reform bill. Now, this is the same messaging that we heard from Secretary Mayorkas this week. He's pinning the responsibility on Congress to take action here. And there has been a bipartisan group of senators working on an immigration reform bill, but those negotiation talks have dragged on over the past year. And now it's looking like Conflicts around Title 42 is throwing a wrench in that process and slowing it down a bit. Specifically, one top Republican involved in those negotiation talks, Senator Cornyn, says, quote, until we deal with the Title 42 issue, it's not going to be possible to move forward on other things that we agree on. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Amazon is allegedly censoring a children's book written by a conservative author. The author points out that his book is being treated differently than books written by liberal authors. Political commentator and author Matt Walsh wrote the book Johnny the Walrus. It's a story about a boy who pretends to be a walrus and thinks about undergoing surgery to become one, but then changes his mind at the last minute. The story is meant to be symbolic of how young kids want to change their gender. The book became a number one bestseller at Amazon. However, two days ago, Walsh tweeted, Amazon has pulled all ads for Johnny the Walrus, claiming it's not appropriate. They've also removed it from the children's category and labeled it political commentary. One Twitter user reacted by pointing out how a book called Anti-Racist Baby is still listed as a children's book and not political commentary. 
I mean, there's a massive push for censorship around anything that doesn't fit the mainstream ideology that Amazon, big tech, Hollywood, Disney, all of them want to put out. So Elon Srutovich is the CEO of Eggard Watches. He told NTD that he uses his company to take a stand on conservative issues. The entire infrastructure of our country is designed to push one ideology, so there has to be companies that start speaking up on the other side of it, or public figures who start speaking up on the other side of it. Otherwise, we're going to kind of lose any sense of uh, diversity of thought and diversity of opinion. We reached out to Amazon for comment, but didn't hear back before broadcast. Amazon stock falling 14% today after it posted its first quarterly loss in seven years, and it was a big one. NTD's Sean Marshall has more. Amazon reported a net loss of $3.8 billion, its first net loss in seven years. While revenues were up, its operating expenses rose in every category, even as a percentage of revenue. The cost to ship in overseas containers more than doubled compared to pre-pandemic rates. And the cost of fuel is approximately one and a half times higher than it was even a year ago. The loss was partially a result of worldwide inflation, supply chain problems, less online shopping, and Rivian. Amazon owns 18% of Rivian, which has been performed poorly recently. I wouldn't say it's red alert yet, but I would say it's it's yellow alert. Phil Masiello is founder of Uplift Fluoride, an Amazon seller who helps other sellers with their brands. Masiello says he and other sellers have never experienced this before. We have to figure out what this is going to look like in a year. Are, are some of these changes temporary? Are some of them long-term? Are some of them short-term? Do we have to rethink our business model? The company had a 3% drop in net online store sales, a 17% increase in physical store sales and slowing down in third-party seller services and subscription services. Amazon in particular is readjusting, it's resizing its capacity, resizing its labor force. Santosh Rao is head of research at Manhattan Venture Partners. Rao says Amazon's performance is a mixed bag and its growth drivers are fine. Numbers were worse than expected and that caught everyone by surprise. Uh, but uh, Overall, I think these are bellwether stocks. They will come back. They will do well down the road. Amazon chief executive Andy Jassy says the pandemic and subsequent war in Ukraine have brought unusual growth and challenges and that our teams are squarely focused on improving productivity and cost efficiency. Sean Marshall, NTD News. It's been eight months since the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the Taliban takeover last August. How have things changed in the country? The host of NTD's The Nation Speaks, Cindy Drucker, interviewed a former high-level Afghan government official to find out more. Jawad Ludin had been Afghanistan's deputy foreign minister and ambassador to Nordic countries and Canada. He tells NTD that eight months following the takeover of Afghanistan, the Taliban are still very much focused on the initial stages of consolidating their power. He says the Taliban are struggling internally and the radical ones seem to have risen to power. I think a real attempt to make government more inclusive and make society more pluralistic has not happened, and it's doubtful if it will ever happen. Um, and because there, it is a, a, a government that's very strongly uh, known uh, and in shape by its uh, ideological identity. Ludin says the Afghan economy had been heavily reliant on foreign presence and foreign aid. And although some international organizations have had access to Afghanistan since the takeover, the country's economy has been devastated. The shrinking of the economy, um, although a serious study has not yet been done, is, is, is about 50 percent. Um, uh, um, so and this is a this is this is beyond uh, any recession you, you, you would know in this part of the world. It, it, it's beyond a depression in the economy. It's a total collapse. Uh, trade with foreign, um, with the neighboring region collapsed um, completely. Uh. The former official says significant protests have taken place in major cities, but the Taliban have, more often than not, cracked down on them rather than listening to the people's demands. He says because of the Taliban's behavior, the country's isolation from the international community is expected to continue for the time being. You can catch the full interview on The Nation Speaks with Cindy Drucker at 11 a.m. Saturday right here on NTD. And a former U.S. Marine is the first American known to die in the war in Ukraine. His family says he went there to fight because he believed in the cause. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. 
Willie Joseph Cancel was 22 years old. He went to Ukraine to help Ukrainian forces fight against the Russian invasion. His mother, Rebecca Cabrera, told CNN that her son's body had not been found. She said, they are trying, the men that were with him, but it was either grab his body or get killed. But we would love for him to come back to us. The Pentagon said they didn't have any information about how Cancel was killed. And look, our thoughts and prayers go out to, to his family. I mean, what a devastating piece of news this has to be for them, for, for anybody to, to lose a son, a brother. Uh, that's uh, that's got to be painful. The former Marine was married and left behind a wife and a young son. Kensel's widow told Fox News that her husband volunteered to go to Ukraine, and she sees her husband as a hero. He went there wanting to help people. He had always felt that that was his main mission in life. Kirby says they continue to urge Americans not to go to Ukraine. Uh, this is an active war zone. This is not the place to be uh, to be traveling to. Uh, I understand, you know, his altruistic motives. I, I do, and I and I respect that. But this is not the place for Americans to go. Kirby said there are many other ways to support Ukraine, such as donating to the Red Cross. Jason Perry, NTD News. In the latest attempt to pressure Russia, the Biden administration wants to confiscate and sell property owned by sanctioned individuals. But there's more to the issue than meets the eye. NTD's Chenny Wu has more. Final request. President Biden doesn't want to just seize the yachts, luxury homes and other assets of Russian oligarchs. He wants to sell them and to use the money to support Ukraine. The Asset Seizure for Ukraine Reconstruction Act is now headed to the Senate after passing the House on Wednesday. The bill would allow the president to confiscate and liquidate property owned by sanctioned individuals. Under current federal law, only the Justice Department has the authority to determine how seized funds can be spent. So the Biden administration wants to create a streamlined administrative process, making it easier to decide how to use the proceeds of the blocked and seized property. Even so, attorneys have said the process of actually liquidating and using the funds could take years. And some experts anticipate sanctioned oligarchs would likely take legal action in the future. Chenny Wu, NTD News. It looks like Ukraine's capital is still a target for Russia. On Thursday, rockets shook the central district in Kyiv. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. Kyiv Mayor Vitaly Klitschko visited a residential site in the capital Friday where two missiles struck a day earlier. He says there's risk of further attacks. Uh, Kyiv's still a dangerous place and uh, this Kyiv st is still the target of Russians. Yes, of course, uh, the capital of Ukraine is a goal uh, and they want to occupy it. Valera Turin was in a nearby building when the two blasts hit. He says he locked himself in the bathroom of his office. The first one struck on that side. It was really loud. I thought it hit somewhere in my office. After about 10 seconds, the second one hit, here. I then realized this one was even closer. Ukrainian rescue workers recovered the body of a journalist who worked at Radio Liberty in Kyiv. The U.S. broadcaster said Viragirich was killed after a Russian rocket hit the building she lived in. The death was the first reported in Thursday's missile strike. Although Moscow didn't comment on this incident, Russia did say Friday it destroyed the production facilities of a rocket plant in Kyiv with high-precision long-range missiles. Meanwhile, the U.S. House passed a bill Thursday that will make it easier to export military equipment to Ukraine. Ahead of the vote, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said every minute matters. It's about time. This strong action could mean the difference between lives saved and lives lost. The measure revives a World War II-era program called the Lend-Lease Act. It allowed Washington to lend or lease military equipment to U.S. allies. In this case, it will help those affected by Russia's invasion, such as Ukraine and Poland. It is a real moment in history that, that we are back on this House floor supporting Lend-Lease. Congressman French Hill said he hopes the bill will end delays in shipping aid to Ukraine. The bill already passed the Senate. Now it heads to the White House for President Biden to sign into law. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Russian President Vladimir Putin has accepted an invitation to the G20 summit in November. That's according to the host of the summit, Indonesian leader Joko Widodo. Widodo also extended an invitation to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who tweeted he was grateful for the invitation. 
Zelensky did not specify whether he would attend the summit. Earlier this week, Widodo spoke with Putin and Zelensky in separate phone calls. He conveyed to Putin the importance of ending the war in Ukraine immediately and Indonesia's desire to contribute to a peaceful resolution. The G20 summit is scheduled to be held on the Indonesian island of Bali in November. Coming up, job ads in New York City will have to state the salary range for the job up front. If they don't do that, employees will be able to sue the company. And one of baseball's greatest pitchers is given a two-year suspension. NTD looks at his alleged crime and the ensuing legal battle. That and more coming up. Employers in New York City will have to disclose how much they're paying for a job when they're listing it. So any ad or posting you see in the city would have to include the minimum and maximum amount a job candidate can expect to get paid. It's not clear yet when the law will take effect. That was supposed to be in May, but lawmakers are pushing for it to be postponed to November. It's now up to the mayor whether it gets postponed or not. Once it goes into effect, the law will allow employees to sue employers for advertising a job, promotion, or transfer without posting a minimum and maximum hourly wage or annual salary. Also in New York, a gang member allegedly shot someone in the head and killed the person, only for the judge to later dismiss the case. The New York Post reports that 17-year-old gang member Steve Mendez allegedly murdered an innocent man a few months ago. He's believed to have mistaken the victim for somebody else. The district attorney reportedly sought life behind bars, but a state Supreme Court justice dismissed the indictment. That's after ruling detectives gave improper testimony during grand jury hearings that would have been unfair towards Mendez. That's according to court records obtained by the New York Post. Mendez has a criminal past with gun offenses on his record. The Bronx district attorney will present the case again to a New York to a new grand jury. Authorities have charged four correctional officers with murder. They're accused of beating an inmate to death after he allegedly threw a cup of urine on them. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. Individuals who are sentenced to incarceration by our criminal courts, they have lost their freedom, but not their basic rights. At a press conference covered by CBS News Miami, Florida State Attorney Catherine Fernandez-Rundell announced that after an extensive investigation, four correctional officers had been charged with murder. In February, an inmate serving life in prison at the Dade Correctional Institution reportedly threw a cup of urine at one of the correctional officers. We believe that the FDLE investigation has developed sufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Ingram was beaten out of the line of sight of the institution where there were no surveillance cameras. While the inmate was being transported to another correctional facility, the van made a stop where the inmate was found deceased. Ricky Dixon, secretary of the Florida Department of Corrections, says he's taking several steps to prevent something like that from happening again. We've temporarily assigned high-level leaders from, around, from facilities around the state to shadow supervisors at Dade on all shifts and provide operational and staffing feedback. Three of the four officers have been arrested, and one remains at large. Jason Perry, NTD News. The premier of the British Virgin Islands was arrested in Miami on Thursday for alleged money laundering and conspiracy to import cocaine. That's according to a DEA complaint. Andrew Faye was arrested at a Miami airport along with the managing director of the British Overseas Ports Authority. The DEA complaint said Faye had agreed to allow an informant to use British Virgin Islands ports to ship cocaine in return for a payment of $500,000. The informant was posing as a member of Mexico's Sinaloa drug cartel. The arrest of Fai was first disclosed by British Virgin Islands Governor John Rankin. The biggest home-sharing platform in the world is making a bold statement in the battle between working at the office versus working from home. Airbnb announced its workers can now live and work from anywhere in the world. NTD's Phil Zoe reports.
Airbnb says its workers can now live and work from anywhere in up to 170 countries. Part of this for them is they want people working remotely. They want people getting Airbnbs and going away for a week to uh, vacation and work. <laughs> um, so for them, it fits very well. Airbnb CEO says the staff's salary won't change even when they move, and workers can stay at each location for up to 90 days. I think. I think the most interesting thing, to be honest, is probably that it is actually Airbnb doing that. Jill Berteau is the CEO of video conferencing firm Livestorm, which can accommodate online meetings for anywhere from three to 10,000 people. He says there needs to be a balance in all that we do. Like everything in life, you need to have balance. And I think for remote works, it's exactly the same. You cannot be on one extreme or the other on the spectrum. You should have to find the right balance. Airbnb said the most meaningful relationships are made in person, however. Most of its staff will still have in-person team meetings once every quarter. Berteau agrees. You're never going to match the level of interaction, the level of proximity you can have when you meet someone face to face and spend an hour or spend a day and talk and not even just about work just deepening like the, the, the relationship. Airbnb says it just had its most productive two-year period in the company's history all while working remotely. Phil Zoe, NTD News. Ford is recalling more than a quarter million Explorer SUVs because they can roll away unexpectedly even while shifted into park. The recall covers certain 2020 through 2022 explorers. U.S. safety regulators said Friday that a rear axle mounting bolt can fracture and cause the drive shaft to disconnect. If that happens, the SUVs can roll away even if they're placed in park. Regulators say Ford has 235 warranty claims due to the problem. But the company says there have been no reports of crashes or injuries. Depending on the model, dealers will either replace parts of the vehicle or they will update the electronic parking brake software. Owners will be notified by mail starting June 6th. The Minnesota Timberwolves look to avoid elimination tonight as they host the Memphis Grizzlies in Game 6. The series is the only Round 1 matchup yet to be decided. NTD's Dave Martin has more. Memphis's John Morant scored the Game 5 winner of a thrilling series that's seen the last two games come down to the final seconds. Teammate Desmond Bain, though, has been the real breakout star, averaging 23 points a game while hitting nearly half his three-pointers. Should Minnesota get the win, it would send up a winner-take-all Game 7 on Sunday. Meanwhile, Game 1 of the Bucks celtics series also starts Sunday in Boston. The teams split their four regular season matchups this year, and the last time they met in the postseason was the 2019 Eastern Conference semifinals, where Milwaukee downed them in five. But the Bucks will reportedly be without three-time All-Star Chris Middleton for the duration of the series with an MCL sprain. In other NBA news, Pelicans All-Star Zion Williamson, who missed the entire season with a foot injury, says he would sign a max extension this summer if offered to stay in New Orleans. Dave Martin, NTD News. ESPN Sports Center host Sage Steele is suing ESPN and its parent company, Disney, for allegedly violating her right to free speech. Last September, Steele called Disney's COVID vaccine mandate sick and said in a podcast it was scary to her in many ways. On the same podcast, Steele, who is biracial, shared how she had once been asked why she didn't solely identify as black, like former President Barack Obama did. Steele responded saying it was fascinating that Obama had chosen to identify as black despite being raised by his white mother and grandmother. Steele said she was forced to offer an apology for her comments. The suit further alleges that she was then taken off prime assignments as punishment, while other ESPN personalities who criticized the company policy went unpunished. After a first round that saw nine trades and a record-tying six receivers selected, the second and third rounds of the NFL draft start tonight. NTD's Dave Martin has more. A pair of emerging receivers were traded yesterday as Baltimore sent Marquise Brown to Arizona and Tennessee jettisoned A.J. Brown to Philadelphia in deals for first-round picks. The two Browns are just the latest star wideouts to switch teams this offseason, following Devontae Adams' trade to Oakland and Tyreek Hills to Miami. The trades came after four wideouts were selected in a five-pick span in the middle of the first round. 
Meanwhile, national champion Georgia set a record with five defensive players selected in the opening round, the most ever for a program's defense. Georgia led the nation with fewest points allowed this year en route to their title. In a draft rarity, no running backs were selected in the first round, and when quarterback Kenny Pickett was taken by Pittsburgh with the 20th pick, it marked the longest time a draft had started without a quarterback being selected since 1997. The second round starts tonight at 7, with Tampa Bay set to pick first. Dave Martin, NTD News. Dodgers pitcher Trevor Bauer has been suspended for two full seasons without pay for violating baseball's domestic violence and sexual assault policy. Bauer has, been de has denied committing any violation of the policy and says he will appeal the decision. Bauer, who won the 2020 Cy Young Award, has been on administrative leave since July of last year following allegations of sexual assault. Los Angeles prosecutors decided not to press charges against him in February due to insufficient evidence. Bauer filed a lawsuit against the accuser and one of her attorneys on Monday, saying she wanted to destroy his reputation and extract millions of dollars from him. If baseball's decision is upheld, Bauer is set to lose roughly $60 million in salary. We've been following Spirit's growth for almost two months now. The young bald eagle has grown significantly and is getting ready to leave the nest in another week or two. Spirit, the bald eaglet, is now eight weeks old and about the same size as mom and dad. In recent days, its mother, Jackie, and father, Shadow, have been spending more time on the outer branches and away from the nest. They're letting young Spirit learn how to feed itself and grasp food with its own talons. The Eagle family lives in a nest about 145 feet above the ground in Southern California's Big Bear Valley. Friends of Big Bear Valley have been live-streaming the eagles since before Spirit hatched. Eagles usually make their first flight at about 10 to 14 weeks of age. This means Spirit may take to the skies in another two weeks. After the first flight, Spirit will remain in the area for another month or so. During this time, Spirit will likely continue visiting the nest to eat or just hang out. But after that, Spirit will take off on its great adventure to explore new areas and find a new place to call home. Friends of Big Bear Valley livestream the nest 24 hours a day from their website for those who can't get enough. Coming up, a family reached an $18 million settlement after a fatal vehicle accident last year. A teenager ran a red light and crashed his Lamborghini into a woman's car. And a county in Southern California is redefining the word women. It includes biological males who identify as women despite public opposition. That and more on NTD News. The family of a Los Angeles woman who was killed in a Lamborghini crash last year has reached an $18 million settlement. The one driving the Lamborghini was a minor at the time. Monique Munoz, 32, was killed in a crash last February. A then 17-year-old driving a Lamborghini SUV ran a red light and crashed into her Lexus. The woman's family announced on Wednesday they reached an $18.85 million settlement of their lawsuit against the teen's parents. According to the attorney representing the family, today is a significant milestone because the Munoz family can finally get some closure for this horrific tragedy. Attorneys said Munoz was driving home from work at the UCLA Health in Los Angeles. She was attempting to make a left turn when the teen ran a red light and slammed into her vehicle, killing her. During a juvenile court hearing for the teen last year, a Los Angeles Police Department officer who investigated the incident testified that the vehicle's speed was recorded at 86 miles per hour, five seconds before the impact. The driver's foot was completely on the gas pedal 100%, and the vehicle's speed reached 106 miles per hour, less than two seconds before the collision. The officer said the data then showed the Lamborghini's driver applying the vehicle's brakes the moment before impact. The race-ready car was moving somewhere between 77 to 92 miles per hour when it collided with Munoz's vehicle. 
The teenager's father is James Curry, described by Forbes as a multimillionaire who owns several real estate firms, manufacturing companies, and an e-commerce business. In response to the settlement announcement, Curry stated he is saddened by the family's loss and hopes that the insurance settlement will build a new beginning that will honor her spirit. Authorities said the teen had previously been cited for speeding by Beverly Hills Police in October 2020 and November 2020. In both instances, the officers noted that the teen was supposed to be driving with someone who was at least 25 years old, according to the rules of a learner's permit. What is the definition of a woman? Apparently, the meaning could change in one Southern California county. Here's a look at the changes that may come. San Diego County Supervisors voted 3-2 on Tuesday in favor of creating an ordinance that redefines the word woman. It would include biological males who identify as women, despite an overwhelming show of opposition from the public. I want to make sure that we emphasize that in, in this ordinance, it's very clear that women and girls refers to those who identify as women and girls, including transgender women and gender nonconforming, and those assigned female at birth who include non-binary, transgender men, and intersex communities. The supervisors approved the first reading of the local ordinance, which would be based on the UN's Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, a human rights treaty penned 40 years ago. However, county officials have revised the original treaty by including biological males who identify as female. The ordinance claims to address employment barriers and discrimination in the legal system, help educate women about their voting rights, and combat gender-based violence and harassment. It would only apply to county departments and programs. Supervisor Joel Anderson, who voted against the motion, called the ordinance aggressive and said it would move women's equality in the wrong direction. And I'm also worried that in the wrong hands, this may weaponize a subject where we should be coming together but may used uh, to purge people or to go after folks. During the meeting, 75 San Diego County residents voiced their opinion, primarily against the ordinance. Those who spoke in favor were county employees and those from nonprofits for women and girls, as well as other organizations like Planned Parenthood. County supervisors will take up the issue again next month. Still to come, France asks itself whether its mission in Mali failed as military forces withdraw amid local resentment and Russian propaganda. That and more after the break. After almost nine years in Mali, the French military is heading home. They leave with regret, as the terrorist threat that the French entered the region to fight is still active. On top of that, the army has become the target of local resentment and Russian propaganda. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has that story. This footage was released by the French military. It appears to show Russian mercenaries burying bodies of locals in the Mali desert. One French officer who spoke on condition of anonymity said it was the Wagner Force, a private Russian mercenary group. The officer says social media accounts that support Russia are blaming the event on French forces and accusing them of war crimes. But the video shows two men filming the scene and vehicles that are used by Wagner forces. A professor of political science from the University of Cincinnati told ABC News that the Wagner group and the Malian armed forces appear to be taking disregard for human life to new levels in Mali. This was a further blow for the French army. French forces in the region since 2013 to fight terrorist groups are attracting growing hostility from locals. France announced a staged pullout from Mali in February, prompted by worsening violence and a breakdown in relations between the two countries. To disengage this site, we sent convoys with many civilian vehicles escorted by military vehicles. These civilian vehicles come to load all the equipment that we must take out of the Gossi base. France's withdrawal from northern Mali is painstaking and slow through hostile territory that its force have failed to secure in 10 years of conflict. A team of sappers lead the military vehicles looking for explosives hidden on the sandy surface. 
Breakdowns are coming. We don't have the beautiful French motorway here. We are in the middle of the desert with big potholes that lead to mechanical risks, such as punctures or damage to vehicles. The second thing is direct enemy risks, which can be traps such as mines or improvised explosive devices. President Macron said in February the operation wasn't a failure, as it eliminated priority targets from terrorist groups. French troops have been a major presence in Mali to quell the Islamist terrorist threat, but radicals have continued their attack on both the army and the civilians. French military expert Michel Goya says staying there was a big mistake and that the French should have remained in a firefighting role instead of trying to be the police. Over 50 French soldiers have died in Mali. David Vives, NTD News. The recent Hollywood movie Uncharted is causing geopolitical tension. The film, starring Tom Holland, is banned in the Philippines. The movie showed a disputed map of the South China Sea, apparently favoring the Chinese Communist Party. NTD's Don Ma has the details. So what happened? In the movie, there's a two-second scene that echoes Beijing's territorial claims in the South China Sea. Here's the scene. What you just saw is China's nine-dash line in the South China Sea. The series of lines encompasses 90% of the area, and China claims everything inside the lines is their territory. But the Philippines say the map encroaches on their territory, so they are banning the movie. Movie producer Chris Fedden says the film should have just avoided showing it. I mean, why even have that map on camera? Uh, why even allude to it? Um, it's something that could easily have been reframed and uh, reframed in some other sort of dialogue or uh, choice of visuals um, to essentially make the same exact plot point. Despite Beijing's claims, the international tribunal ruled in 2016 that China's nine-dash line has no legal basis. Countries like the U.S., Vietnam, and Malaysia also dispute China's claims. For Fenton, there is little benefit for the movie to include such a controversial map. I don't see what the upside would be. I don't think it would have translated to bigger box office in China. In fact, the movie itself didn't perform all that well in China. So I don't see what the end game was in regards to doing it purposely. The Philippines Foreign Ministry says the scene infringes on their national interest and has pulled the movie from theaters. The controversial map may or may not have been included on purpose in the movie to please Beijing for the Chinese movie market. But this idea of pleasing China is not unheard of in Hollywood. An upcoming major Hollywood blockbuster, Top Gun Maverick, starring Tom Cruise, is an example. And in that Top Gun film, Taiwan, the flag of Taiwan on the flight jacket of Tom Cruise has been erased from the film. The Chinese government did not want Taiwan seen in that kind of light around the world in a major box office um, film like Top Gun. And Paramount, the studio, relented and essentially took it out of the shot. The reason why Hollywood studios do these things is for the Chinese movie market. But Fenton tells me what suffers is creative freedom. Though he says capitalism and freedom of expression can coexist, and he would like to see that in Hollywood. Don Ma, NTD News. Peruvian police entered a Chinese-owned copper mine Thursday to evict an indigenous community. The group had established a camp near the open pit, forcing the mine to halt operations. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. 700 indigenous people were evicted from Peru's largest Chinese-owned copper mine Thursday. The people were camping at the Las Bombas mine for 14 days. They were protesting alleged breaches by the Chinese state-owned Min Metals through its subsidiary, MMG Limited. We've been surprised by the mining company forces, their contractors, their criminals they hired. But this stays here. Las Bombas stays here. We regret this situation for these indigenous farmers. More than a thousand riot police fired tear gas canisters at the demonstrators. The protesters responded by throwing rocks at police. The mine bought the territory from the Fuera Bamba community. But the indigenous demonstrators alleged that the company is not fulfilling its commitment to give them 440 acres of land. We have the willingness to talk. We have the willingness to install solutions. I think we wait for the indicated day as mentioned in our minutes, and we wait for that. 
In the meantime, our position continues until that date. The eviction shows a shift in the tactics of Pedro Castillo's government, which had refrained from using force in previous months. The government early on limited freedom of assembly and protests for 30 days in the area. Peru is the world's second largest copper producer after Chile. Most exports of the metal go to China. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. In the 10 weeks since Russia's war on Ukraine began, nearly 3 million Ukrainians have taken refuge in Poland. Among them, countless Ukrainian children. In the city of Warsaw, schools were already facing teacher shortages and classroom overcrowding, but the communities are still welcoming Ukrainian children in. Here's more. New school, new language, new country. We follow the needs. When we opened these classes, we did not know what would be in a week, what would be in a month. There are now 50 Ukrainian refugees enrolled at this Warsaw High School, bringing the student population up to 700. It's Olena's first day. Laisha is a few weeks in and happy to be back in class. It's given me some uh, space or give me the feeling of uh, safety that I'm safe here, I'm in my normal life. In Warsaw alone, the mayor's office estimates the city has taken in more than 100,000 children. With 17,000 already enrolled in public school, the question now is how many more will come? It's a big problem for us because we don't know how many uh, uh, students uh, go to Warsaw and go to our schools. Warsaw was already short 2,000 teachers before Russia invaded Ukraine. The city needs more staff and money. This is a huge challenge for us. A good heart, willingness to help and volunteering are not enough. And yet, they're finding ways to make it work. Polish students are paired with their new Ukrainian classmates. We use a lot of Google Translate. Local families have donated supplies. The school provides breakfast and lunch. In Lviv, Mariana taught German. Officially, she's now a tutor, yet it's clear this mom of three, who also fled the war, is so much more. We don't just speak Ukrainian. We speak the language of emotions and the language of what we've gone through. Comfort amidst the uncertainty. While there are more smiles every day, the principal says he can't forget what lies beneath. While school is a welcome distraction, it's also a reminder of how much their lives have changed. Coming up, the world's first vertiport for delivery drones and flying taxis is up and running in England. The company behind it plans to build 200 of them across the world over the next five years. And the Bronx Zoo in New York City just welcomed a baby Matchy's tree kangaroo. We'll take a closer look at that adorable footage when we return. For over 20 years, an Italian water company has been working to send its H2O into orbit and quench the thirst of busy astronauts. Now the company is turning its attention deeper into space, to the Moon and Mars. For over 20 years, SMAT has been working with Franco-Italian aerospace firm Thales Elenia Space to produce drinking water for astronauts aboard the International Space Station. But there may be a new mission on the horizon serving upcoming crewed missions to the Moon and Mars. We need to choose elements that do not denature the water itself, but make it possible to conserve for long periods of time. The studies and research we are working on is to understand what are the best techniques available to produce space-bound water. SMAT first sent a tank filled with its precious H2O to the International Space Station in 2008. While a mission in 2014 included three tanks of water prepared in these labs, the plant prepared two different types of water based on specific American and Russian tastes. 
The production processes are also different. For the American water, we add almost exclusively only disinfectant, which is iodine, which is much more long-lasting compared to chlorine, which we use on Earth in a very limited manner. On the other hand, for the Russian crew, the disinfectant we use is silver ion that is added electrolytically to the water by melting ultra-high purity electrodes. Over two and a half gallons of source water is required to produce just two space-bound pints. Water treated for space requires more work, but the estimated price of up to nearly $21,000 per gallon is mainly due to transportation costs from Earth to space. It's not about the cost of the water, because treating water for space compared to treating water for Earth is extremely expensive. But its final price is also due to the transport from Earth to space. Depending on its vector, whether we use a shuttle like we did at the beginning or European vectors, we were talking about up to 50,000 euros per kilogram. So we are talking about impressive costs. SMAT technicians are currently prepping water that will be able to avoid contamination for at least two years, the duration of a round trip to Mars. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The world's first vertiport for delivery drones and flying taxis is up and running in England. It will be several years before the vehicles are operational, but organizers say it's an important infrastructure is in place for when those flights are possible. NTD's Eddie Aitken brings us this story. This unusual facility is the urban airport, billed as the world's first vertiport. It is not just for drones, though. The aim is that hubs like these will be used by flying taxis, transporting passengers on short journeys from city to city. It's been designed very much like an airport with a lounge, security gates, and a takeoff area. So you'll be using one of these to get an air taxi to another city, another town, another location um, very, very soon. The company behind this Vertiport plans to build 200 of them across the world over the next five years. Sandu says now is the right time to get these mini airports in place for when electric flying vehicles start taking off. The price for his urban airports is expected to be around five to 10 million pounds each. This one has been built in a car park in Coventry city centre and took 11 weeks to construct. And it's just as quick to take down and move elsewhere if needed, an important feature for this emerging technology. So our product is designed to give that agility and flexibility so you're not you know, signing up to you know, a very expensive um, carbon-hungry solution that you have to, you know, it's going to stay there for hundreds of years. Hyundai brand Supernal is one of the companies interested in operating from hubs like this. It launched its concept flying taxi vehicle, the SA-1, at the Las Vegas tech show in 2020. It's different than a helicopter in a couple significant ways. It's electric, so it's all electric battery operated, which makes it quieter. And it also allows you to distribute the rotors. So instead of one large rotor, it has eight rotors. They aim to have it ready for use by 2028. It's estimated a four-passenger vehicle like this could transport 150,000 people a year. Urban airports will also become home to drones, from autonomous delivery drones to machines flown by emergency services. West Midlands Police has seen its drone usage explode since it began in 2017. It's literally gone from zero, 2017, to last year was kind of 700 hours. At the moment, legislation means they can only fly drones that are within their sight line, but the change in the law could expand so that they can fly them further from their base. The big fear with drones is it's some kind of surveillance. It really isn't. It's kind of around saving life and pre pre preventing detecting crime. This vertiport is operational for the next four to six weeks, with all the permissions and certifications in place to operate drone flights. Whether it stays open longer will depend on whether its services are in demand. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. You've probably seen the Christ the Redeemer statue in Brazil's Rio de Janeiro. Now a smaller town in southern Brazil has built an even taller Christ to attract tourism. Let's take a look. This statue of Jesus Christ in the small Brazilian town of Encandado is 141 feet high. It's called Christ the Protector. 
In comparison, Rio's Christ the Redeemer stands at just 125 feet. Built with concrete over a metal structure, it has already been erected on a hill above the town. But the venue will only open to the public sometime next year, according to the vice president of the association that sponsored the statue. Our statue of our Christ protector here in Encantado is the largest statue of Christ in the world. The statue has an observation point for visitors who can look out through a large heart-shaped window. The view will have to compete with the spectacular sight tourists have looked out over Guanabara Bay from the Christ standing atop Rio's Corcovada Mountain. Rio's Art Deco statue was built with reinforced concrete and soapstone and took nine years to complete in 1931. It's an icon of Rio de Janeiro and one of the wonders of the world. And the Bronx Zoo in New York City just welcomed a baby Matchy's tree kangaroo known as a joey. Let's take a look. This baby tree kangaroo is the first of its species born at the Bronx Zoo since 2008. It's the result of the zoo's participation in a cooperative breeding program managed by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. As the joey matures, it will begin to explore its environment and start spending more time outside the pouch. At birth, the joey is about the size of a human thumbnail and immediately crawls through the mother's fur to enter her pouch. After about seven months, the joey emerges from the pouch but frequently returns to nurse. The International Union for Conservation of Nature classifies the Machis tree kangaroo as endangered and estimates that fewer than 2,500 remain in the wild. Tree kangaroos are arboreal and live within the canopy of mountain forests, generally at elevations above 4,000 feet. Fourteen different species of tree kangaroos are found only in areas of Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, and Australia. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.